funny. Go for it. All right. Ready to roll, guys? Yeah. Let go. Welcome back, guys, to episode four of Jim Goss. And we are here with Samuel Skepis, Jackson Pios, myself, and our special guest today, Hattie Boydell. Hattie, welcome. Having me, guys. And Hattie's a WBFF a fitness model world champion. She's a renowned coach and educator, and she's one of Australia's most influential fitness figures. And we're going to sit her down today and put her through her paces uh, and get to know her a little bit better and her history uh, coming up into uh, the fitness industry. So Hattie, I'd like to first start with where it all began, because looking and assessing your physique, you don't strike me as someone who just one day woke up out of bed, um, you know, out of shape and then had to diet down and do a fitness model show. Uh, you look to be somebody who's been uh, quite athletic and dominant all your life, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I could be completely wrong. Um, so where did it all begin? Give us a background on your athletic history um, as a kid. If you played any sports, were you good at them? Were you horrible at them? And yeah, shoot. Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, as I reflect back on my life, I have done more training than anything else in my life. So my parents put me into gymnastics when I was four years old. And shocker, I ended up um, becoming an elite gymnast. And I was training 32 hours a week when I was 12 years old. So I trained more then, back then, than I do like now. And uh, even in a competition prep. And, you know, I'm really grateful because gymnastics taught me so much. It taught me skill. It taught me discipline. It taught me focus. Um, I was strong. I was powerful. And I could pretty much do every sport under the sun. So coming to high school, I could do track and field, um, swimming, aerobics. I literally did like every single sport that I could possibly get my hands on. And I could do it really well. Um, you know, that was a really great base just to be, just to be able to do any kind of movement. And it set me up really nicely for when I got into weight training. So I started weight training when I was 17. Um, funny enough, I got into weight training from, um, I used to go out when I was underage. So. That does not surprise me at all. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. You know, I was, I, you know, in high school, I, I was hospitalized with anorexia. You know, and um, when I finally got out of hospital, my mum said to my sister, just take your sister out. Just sit, let her live life, like expose to her what life is. And so I started going out when I was um, 17 and, and had a fake ID and I met these bouncers and they were like, man, look at your legs. Like, you got to do some, do you weight training? I was like, no, I just wasn't, I was running a lot and obviously like still quite unhealthy. And um, yeah, they they kind of introduced me to weight training. And then from there, I did my PT course um, and just fell in love with, with lifting weights, which was really different to what I was doing before because I was just running and running and running and running and running uh, in a very unhealthy way. And I got into fitness modeling, I think, about, yeah, when I was 20. So two years later or three years later after starting weight training and, and two years later after doing my PT certificate and working in a gym and, you know, eight weeks later I was on stage, just, 
I was uh, I was so amateur. Like I look at the little photos and I'm just like 49 kilos or something. I'm never going to be that weight again. Like just this tiny little thing. I got came second, qualified two weeks later for um, the nationals. I won that, and then two weeks later. Um, got invited to the international show and that that year for some reason they decided to do it on the Gold Coast so I didn't even get to go internationally like where they would normally do it uh, and then I end up getting um, first in my in my category for the short short division and then got second um, overall and that was like my little introduction into the sport of, of fitness modeling um, it wasn't really till 2013 so like two years later or even a year and a half later that I really got into fitness modeling and it wasn't until the WBFF kind of moved to Australia where I won my pro card and, and I was like, wow, this is actually something I'm really passionate about. And it wasn't until I really took things seriously and recognized, you know, this is a sport that kind of itched the itch of what competing with gymnastics used to, used to give me. Um, obviously being an elite level gymnast, I was in, incredibly competitive I was actually meant to head over to um, I was looking at doing the Commonwealth Games and also the Olympics but I quit you know before I moved over to Canberra and so it really did scratch the itch of like okay it's it's skill progression I'm progressing in some way it's fucking hard um, and I can compete against other people and I can compete against myself so yeah, it wasn't really till I didn't really take competing like that seriously till 2014 with the WBFF. Sure. Awesome. So I was pretty much on the money there with uh, you being a bit of an all-round athlete from a very early age. And it's funny how many um, successful athletes in, in many disciplines uh, started out, especially women and in strength sports, started out with gymnastics. Um, there's a lot um, yeah, a lot of correlation there. Uh, so let's go one step further back and this will be a rather easy to question, question to answer. Are your parents equally as, uh, athletically gifted or were you the odd one out of the family, the black sheep, or is it something that's in your family that it's just sport is what we do? My dad was my biggest inspiration when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So he was a gymnast and, he like the reason I did gymnastics was because the reason because he did so he and I should do used to do like flips and flips and flips and flips and flips along the beach my sister like <laughs> is not sporty like she goes to the gym now but she's not sporty my brother is sporty he rides motorbikes and surfs and um he played football and soccer and he was athletic my mom not athletic but she loves training now she started training when she was like 40 but she never did anything else but my family my family's always been in shape um my sister's a great drinker (laughs) she's not like she's probably the one that's like less involved in any sort of fitness and health but she's trying to balance but yeah no my dad my dad's like super athletic he still rides motorbikes he still surfs um yeah he was a gymnast so that was like he was like my inspiration back then for sure all your best events are you sorry what were your best events? Like what one would you be able to take to like the Commonwealth Games or something? I never lost at floor. Yeah. I, would, I would take home gold first place at floor every single competition. And why did you floor, stop? Like the least popular one? Two questions at once. Oh, what do you mean? 
What's the least popular one? I was what? asking, is Floor the least popular one? That's why he kept winning because no one else, like, not competing and saying. No, no, no. You have to do all. You have to do all apparatuses. You have to do floor, okay. vault, beam, and bars. It was. So a, I would say the again least... another bad joke. Sorry, Jackson and Hattie. I was like, <laughs> I'll sit here quietly again. <laughs> Are you a dad? Your diet brain. No, I think your diet brain. Your my my jokes aren't landing on your dieting heads. <laughs> I'm. I mean, I'm terrible at this times, but no. So like floor, like yeah, you've got to do all the all of the events. But what did you say, Jacob? I asked, why did your gymnastics career end? Okay, so two reasons. The first reason is my my best friend quit. And I thought, well, if you're not doing it, I don't really want to do it either. And my parents were like, oh, are you sure you want to make that decision? And then the other one was, boys. (laughs) My hobby's changed. (laughs) As I got into high school, I was like, hmm. But I don't want to spend my time, and it wasn't yes. anymore. <laughs> the opposite sex is a real killer for um, athletes when they're young. Sink. She took one type of rolling on the floor for another. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jackson, I think uh, I'm going to hand it over to you now because uh, you have a somewhat similar story uh, to Hattie in terms of um, you know your dad's involvement. Um, you know, in high level sport, passing that on to you. And obviously um, you weren't, you were average probably at best at most things that you've done. Um, that's why you post about anime and stuff now, um, you know, the easy route, passive path of least resistance for Jackson's always been the way. Um, no, I told Jackson I'd roast him hard this episode. So <laughs> <laughs> here, we, here we go. Um, so yeah, tell us about your background, Jackson, Jackson and how that probably does relate to Hattie's because I think um, there is a lot of similarities. Yeah. So my dad was a professional professional footballer, played for uh, the West Coast Eagles. So um, a lot of my mindset when it comes to training and discipline and things like that were installed in me um, from a very early age, just coming from him. Um, so obviously I went into football as my first sport um, as, as soon as I could Auskick, um, eight or nine years old, and was playing playing that, um, became pretty infatuated in that. But I could also tell that probably I didn't have the, um, the genetic makeup that potentially dad did. Um, for whatever reason, when it comes to, to AFL players, um, the best guys tend to be really good from a very young age. Uh, They tend to pick it up quite naturally. Like um, my dad was a standout talent as a kid um, and lots of the other players that he grew up with were standout talents as well, like all the way up to like 13, 14, 15, 16, state and and whatnot. Um, I had sort of a bit of a tougher time and I I give mum shit for this all the time because while dad is like the the prime cut beef of genetic um, potential. Mum can't even catch a tennis ball. So I feel like I got caught in the middle of the genetic blend there where I was sort of a little bit average. Um, But what I did have from dad was um, I learned how to train, train really hard uh, and and discipline myself that way. So um, while I wasn't a, a standout footballer, I became pretty good at athletics. Uh, 
and I sort of was champion boy coming up through like my early teenage years. Like I was a pretty good sprinter. I would always win long jump and things like that. And I would win most of my school events. Um, and then I sort of figured out that maybe um, football wasn't my calling. So uh, I went into rowing uh, at the school and, and, and rowing that is a event that, or a sport that really separates the men from the boys. And you have to, like with a set seven, seven minute event approximately for, for a 2K row, like you're ba it's basically a sprint for seven minutes and, and you, you've gone beyond your anaerobic threshold by like the 42nd mark. And then it's try to maintain some sort of intensity um, despite incredible amounts of fatigue and lactate build up and things like that. So that, that really sort of teaches you how to find your limit and, and go beyond your limit. And I was a very talented rower. And I think, I think I was a talented rower, not because of my genetics, but I was quite comfortable going to that sort of very painful place uh, and that nasty mental place that you have to go. So I ended up being the best rower um, in the school. I was captain of boats, captain of a 120 person um, squad and, I led our first date to the, the head of the regatta um, all, all through my year 12. Um, and in year 12, that's when I sort of, we started lifting weights to become better rowers. Um, like it, it, rowing is very endurance, but there is as well, especially in like the starting stages and the, in the final stages of the race. So I started lifting weights to complement rowing and just got quite interested in that and, and watched my body, excuse me, change quite quickly. And then um, rowing is sort of, at, at, when you're sort of 18, it's, like, it's either you start going with the state team to row for the Commonwealth Games or, or you sort of just fuck around and, and do it for fun. And um, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't passionate enough about it to sort of make the push to, um, the Commonwealth Games because a rowing a rowing training schedule is absurd. Like you, you're, you're up at four a.m. Like you're rowing till eight, and you go about your day, and then you'll have like another session in the p.m. Like these, these are massive, massive hours um, on the water. And uh, when you look at the research on like Olympic um, level rowing, the like the Spanish team is known for for being the the best year year on year. And consistently, they do the most hours on the water every year um, compared to the other countries. So it's quite easy to work out that like it's a volume sport. Like the more rowing you do, um, the the better you become. So it's, it's a massive, massive investment in time commitment to, to be a rower. And I wasn't prepared through that. Um, I was starting. To, I was going to uni, starting my uni career. Um, so I started just focusing a little bit more on the weights. And um, when I was focusing on the weights, I, I started. To, just thinking, shit, how can, I, how can I make my progress a little bit better? Um, and that quickly led me into the domain of nutrition and, and figuring out that, geez, if you get your diet sort of structured, you can progress a hell of a lot faster in the gym. Um, and I just sort of became obsessed with finding those little one or 2% things that you could do with your diet and with your training to become that little bit better. And that's basically what pushed me into like really focusing on research and, and university because um, it, it's an evidence-based domain. Like the, the, you need to be able to consult the research to have 
an understanding of the principles of physiology and nutrition and, and to, to know how to apply it. So, um, yeah, that's basically like, so less of a successful career um, compared to Hattie by, by a long means, but um, I do, um, a successful trainer. Uh, perhaps I haven't reached um, the personal level of athletic success that I want to, uh, but I also feel like I'm still getting better. Uh, and uh, uh, now that university is finished and I have a little bit more free time and a few more resources to invest in my own pockets with regards to like, my training and my diet and less other commitments, I feel like these last sort of 12 months, even 24 months, I've started to re really hit my stride with progression. So um, I, I, I chatted with you guys before, like it's me even getting to the point where competitions are starting to be on the horizon. And I do think I'm becoming realistically, not yet, but almost realistically a, a threat at some of these decent shows. So um, yeah, I definitely don't think my journey is complete yet um perhaps just getting into it a little bit later than maybe Hattie did or, or some of the other people but um I'm hungry for it now that's for sure um and I do think that my rate of improvement is as good as it's ever been um today yeah I think um I know I can speak for Sam and myself without going into too much detail but we Sam probably not so much um the same degree as me, but I was active uh, as a child and involved in a heap of sports. Um, and I think that um, really set the tone for when I got into the gym. Uh, Cause you learn a lot of those uh, lesser known or spoken about skills, whether it's, you know, rocking up to training, whether you don't, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, putting in the hard yards, learning how to suffer through a little bit of pain, whether it's playing footy in the, in the rain and the cold and, you know, having the leather hit your hands when it's, you know, feels like ice. Um, all those little things that when you get into the gym, you're more equipped to train hard and push yourself when compared to someone who probably isn't, I'd say. That leads me into the next question, which was going to be about what separates, um, you know, somebody who's a world champion, Hattie, in your opinion, uh, from the pack. And, you know, building off of this previous conversation about, um, you know, or just all the hours of, you know, training and just discipline and hard work. Um, is there anything that springs to mind for you uh, when it comes to trying, trying to identify those who, have the ability to be a world champion versus those that don't? I, I truly believe the backbone of success comes down to self-belief. Like I truly believed I have what it takes and had what it takes and do have what it takes to be a champion and be a, a, be a, a recurring champion, you know, and, and um, that sets the tone for the quality and intentions of everything that I do. You know, how, how well I follow a process, the intention towards a process, my language, um, I guess, how I show up for myself. So if you don't believe, then you're not going to succeed. Like whether you can or you, whether you think you can or you can't, like that's the actual truth, right? So what separates a champion from your mediocre person is like self-belief and you have to want it because it's hard. Like it requires sacrifice. Like I've sacrificed hours and hours and hours out of my time for like, that goes to training. Like I've spent more time training than anything else in my life. Like that's saying passion. That's saying self-belief. That's saying like, this is 
this is the vision that I have myself. And I love visualization. I see myself on stage. I know how it feels in my body. I call myself like the lioness when I walk out on stage. And it's like, something I say to myself before I get on stage, you know how Muhammad Ali, I'm gonna show you how great I am. Like that's literally, I walk out and I'm like, I'm gonna show you how great I am. And I just like walk out to that. And, you know, I've had like a lot of lessons, like, you know, I won in 2016 and I lost the title the next year. And I was like, oh man, that was such a hard lesson. And I had to learn, yeah, I often say I've got to learn the hard way, but I, I learned that like I, I wanted it and I believed I could. And then when I got it, I thought, oh shit, was I really good enough? And so that was like some work that I had to do, you know, myself. And it's funny, like the last three years, I haven't come first, but I believe more than ever that I'm a champion. And so the work's not done. And in fact, like that was just a learn, a lesson I was deserving of in a way where maybe I took it for granted. So I think, you know, something that, um, something that I always think about is, and, and actually um, Seabum said it, is like pressure is a privilege, right? Pressure creates rocks or it creates diamonds. So how are you going to use that pressure? Is it going to make you work harder or is it going to, you know, tear you apart? And why I like, I think champions are, are very process driven because a process measures, measures results. Systems support humans. Systems support the work that is there to be done. And so if you want to be a champion, you have to be willing to be incredibly process driven. The goal gives you the direction. The process gives you the result. And the process is there to be refined and refined and refined and refined. And that's kind of what I'm always focusing on. So even as I get ready for this show, um, I can't do the Worlds this year. The Worlds actually are happening next weekend, which uh, is going to be quite a bittersweet moment because I've done the Worlds for the last, the last five years. Uh, it doesn't really feel like the Worlds if I'm not there. <laughs> um, and if the Australians aren't there because the Australians are like the best in the world. Oh, it's, a, it's an opportunity to get ready for the Australian Pro Show and just refine that process again so that I can be the champion. So, yeah, I guess bring it back to your question, Jacob, is like the backbone of anything is self-belief. Whether you, can, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And that's what separates mediocre from a champion. I like it. I like it. Jackson, anything that you would uh, add to that? when thinking about, um, you know, athletes you've worked with who are, you know, very successful versus those that don't, is there anything that springs to mind? Yeah. Um, so I agree with everything that Hattie said there, but something else I've also noticed, and I, I only really learned this um, over the past few years of, of, of being a coach and working with a lot of different clients from uh, gen pop to elite, is that mental resiliency just isn't an inherent trait in everyone. Um, I think because I had a, father, a dad who taught that trait to me very early on, I sort of just assumed that everyone had that and that it was understood that to reach an exceptional level in something, a fair amount of discomfort is going to be required to get there. Uh, but what I've realized uh, from coaching and working with a lot of different types of people is they just don't understand how to be, how to 
endured discomfort for very long. And a lot of people, they want to change their physiques or they, they like the idea of looking better at the beach or something like that, but they're also not willing to give up much. And um, that's probably my biggest struggle with working as a coach is when I'm working with these clients that just don't really know how to work hard. And when things do get a little bit uncomfortable or they get hungry or their energy levels are, are low, they, they, they immediately come to me looking for an out or like, how can I get rid of my hunger? How can my energy come back? And like, it's very hard for me because I just understand that this is part of the game. And you just like, without saying it too bluntly, like you got to suck that shit up. Like it, it, it's what, what has to be done. And it doesn't just apply in like physique sports. Like you look at like the Kobe's or, or the Michael Jordan's or stuff like that. Like they had to endure massive amounts of discipline and discomfort and basically like living in a box for years and years and years and years to, to and they had to give up massive amounts. Like uh, I, I read Kobe's book recently and like he wouldn't go out and party with friends. He wouldn't go to after team dinners. Like he would be at training before everyone else and he'd be there after everyone else. And, and that's just putting everything on the line. And like, I'm sure he didn't want to do that. Like, there's no way he'd be like, oh, this is fucking fun. Like being on low sleep and, and shoot, shooting, 300 baskets after the game when you're already shot and you're exhausted like there's no way that, that that's going to be fun for him or that he's enjoying that time he just understands that discomfort to to reach an elite level that, that, that they're closely related and you can't have one without the other so i think a massive thing like like obviously we, we have the genetic lottery which which explains a, a fair chunk of stuff but I think when you get to the, the top level that you're not going to have, you're not going to find anyone at that uh, elite sort of threshold that isn't willing to really undergo some, some nasty discomfort for a, a long period of time in, in to reach the level of success that they're aiming for. I'm so glad you said that. That's something I was speaking about this morning on my call, the level, like everyone's trying to look for that relief as soon as they feel uncomfortable. And it's in the discomfort that we grow, right? So everyone says they want something until it takes action, until it requires you to do something that you've never done before for an extended period of time. Anyone can work hard for six weeks, but who's willing to work hard for six years? Mm -hmm. you know, and, these, and these overnight success, nothing happens after sacrifice. And so, you know, I always really wants it, you know, because we are action and actions have to be repeated over and over and over again, no matter how, how uncomfortable they are. So, yeah, no one, everyone's trying to look for a relief because everyone's validation and everyone wants the easy road now. And social media, while we can use it as a tool to see what's actually possible, humanly possible, it also doesn't show the hard work and the hours that have taken to, to get there, like the countless hours and sacrifice mm. so I, I agree with you guys and i think a really good example of this is actually sam because sam was by any stretch of the imagination it's it's a stretch to even call him a mediocre powerlifter for years he in the under 74 category when it was under 74s it's now under 77s uh, so far all you've done is shit on my athletic prowess i have more titles than hang you. on hang on this is I your moment this is where i'm actually gonna i have something to say at here. a higher level than you that i'm about to point to that out that. Give, give me a second so sam was as i said mediocre 
And he just, he's one of the most disciplined and diligent uh, athletes. I don't know if, if Sam has a secret weapon, um, it is his ability to just play the long game and put in the work for weeks, months, and years on end. So as you were saying, Hattie, it's like it, you, nobody's an overnight success. You don't see the accumulation of work that occurs over extended periods of time. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Sam in powerlifting. He just came out of nowhere. What was it, Samuel? 2017, 2018, 2018. 2018. It was also and 2018 just absolutely destroyed the under 74 class. Uh, one of the most competitive um, classes in the under 74s to date. I think it was, I think, there were how many people broke the previous national total record? I think like two or three. Yeah, there was like all of the records went in like one one competition, but they also changed the the weight classes. So there was like that's a bit of a confounding factor because there's probably a lot of people who are like either pushing to be in the seventy fours or like too small to be in there. 83s and they're kind of hovering around that you know mid to high 70 mark which is probably a very very standard weight for a lot of you know middle eight like you know late 20s early 30s males um and yeah i don't think like i was a poor athlete i was i think it was just like piecing it together and just like sticking it out um that's exactly that's what that's what i was getting i was like even in powerlifting, I, I experienced probably success early on. Like I won local comps and stuff like that. But when it came to like, when it was crunch time, every time, like I went for a bunch of record attempts and that's like very, like various things happened along the way. Um, and then, yeah, it was like literally one competition. It all came together. Mm. And it was but as, as I was saying, it's time. like more so expressing your athletic, athletic potential, um, doesn't just happen overnight. It's like, you know, even if somebody doesn't have what it takes to be a world champion, it's like being the best you can be and reaching your potential takes a monumental amount of time and effort. And I think that's something that I saw and I saw it all come together um, in a single, you know, moment for you, um, which is really cool and something that's, um, yeah, amazing with sport. Um, so Hattie, along this journey of yours, have there been, especially since you entered the realms of, um competitive um physique sports have there been any moments where you've wanted to pull the pin um and just do something different i feel like i had a midlife crisis (laughs) last year (laughs) last year in the way that like i've been competing year after year multiple shows since 2012 up until last year when everything got called off and, you know, I'm really grateful for, for COVID in the way that I was like, if I, I wouldn't have never had a year off without that. And what it exposed to me was that regardless if I'm competing or not, the process that I use just supports the person I want to be. And I don't need an external goal to look this way or train with the intensity that I train at or track my nutrition or just give a shit really. Cause I love myself, you know, I love feeling like this. I love looking like this and I'm passionate about training. And so it was like the first time I thought, well, do I even want to compete again? Because I recognize, holy shit, I put so much pressure on myself and it's amazing pressure. Like I've achieved so much, so much, not many people become a world champion. Um, no. But I was like, only one each year. 
that's right. Like I was like, oh shit, like I'm 32. Like, do I want to do, is this, a, do I want to keep doing this? You know? So it was like a first moment. I was like, oh, right, I've never been in this position where I've thought, hold on, am I done? Or am I just taking like a little mini, mini break? Um, thing is I still kept training, still kept doing my nutrition. I'm getting ready for the October show in October, um, this in October, obviously. Spoiler. And this is going to be the show that decides, yeah, I want to keep going or you know what, win this one and I'm done. But yeah, so it's really, um, and I would like to do, you know what, I've always, I toy with the idea of doing a, a, powerlifting competition I, I love competing I ah, love yes working but I want to stay 60 kilos I don't want to do a heavier class and then I want to so don't why what do you have to I think I like you I've raised... got, again I'm gonna have a high expectation of myself so you're really strong yeah. anyway I think you raised a really good point there Hattie is like a lot of people and this is something I often speak to a lot of my clients about you know particularly the ones that say like what you just said I want to compete in this I want to compete in that it's like I think we have to, you know, take a, a step back and sometimes look internally and say, okay, but what is the reason behind the wanting to compete? Um, you know, is it intrinsically motivated? Is it because, you know, you're struggling? It's like, you know, you see it all the time where people are using like competitions and stuff as a means to an end, a way that the only way that they could regulate their weight, it's the only thing that gets them to the gym. And, you know, that's okay, I think, at times, but I think there's definitely in those situations, some underlying things that need to be addressed. And the point you made of like, you just love training. It's like just the process of training is what you, you wake up in the morning and go, oh, this thing is cool. And that kind of investment in yourself, your well-being, you know, your, your physicality, your strength on a daily basis. And I think that's something that more people should be focusing on. And that's, you know, that's what gets you to the, high level competitions anyway is like just being like i i absolutely love this thing that is just like slow gradually bettering myself going into the gym and appreciating training for what it is it's like you'll never get there like you're never going to get there you're never going to be as strong never going to be as jack never going to be as fast as you may want to be or you may think you can be but the competitions are just like kind of these like little signposts along the way but if you if you hold them in such high regard and that's like the only thing that you have it's and you tie your identity very heavily to i'm a competitor i'm a competitor i'm a competitor it's like if those competitions go then what like we've seen this like for the last 18 months all of these people who are powerlifters bodybuilders you can't compete like what's the point like do you what are you still training at home like how are you making do are you still like bothering to keep fit or is that part of your identity kind of being just like taken away and it's like now you can't compete and now there's just this void. Yeah. Right? I mean, something I speak to my girls about is like, you know, what's your why at the end of the day? Yeah. Like as an example, if you know your why so deeply, then regardless of what, like your goal shouldn't change just because your environment has like, that's when you know your, your why that's when you're like, no matter what I'm getting on stage. But if it's a, like you said, a means to an end, like some people only know how to lose weight when they get on stage. Now, is that healthy? Yeah. A big no, it's not. Do, are you a better person competing? No, you're not. People rely on this external thing to have self-worth. Like this is the danger of this 
I love myself. I don't have to love myself just to compete. In fact, I'll probably love myself more without competing, you know? Mm. And, um, you know, I think that that's, you know, we all go through our own journey and we get the lessons we are, you know, deserving of for the choices that we make, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you really have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And like I said in the beginning, like our intention behind why we do things is going to create the quality of our process. Like it creates a quality of our language. It creates a quality of our effort in the gym, the effort or the, um, you know, the choices we make around nutrition. Do we rest and recover when we need to? Do we go out and do more? It just sets, it sets the quality of the experience. And so knowing what your why is, is it a, like I call it a, a, um, a compensatory goal? So is it compensating something or is it an ascending goal? Are you moving towards something because you've already built the foundations of, of love, appreciation, of self-worth, mm. just the icing on the, ta- on the, on the cake? You're not going to lose self-worth if you don't get what you want. And, you know, like, like I love competing. Jackson, you want to look at, you're looking at competing as well. Like I'm sure you'll get a real kick out of it, but you seem like a pretty solid dude within yourself that like it's just going to complement your life, not makes not fill yeah. a hole, you know. Yeah. It's like adding to not mm. the be all and end all. It's not filling a hole. Yeah, I think uh, you raised some really, really good points there. So I have one more question on this before we move into some training related stuff. So obviously, Jackson, you mentioned how some people either have that resilience or they don't. Um, But that sort of, you know, comes down to the whole nature versus nurture debate. Um, We know it's not all genetics. A lot of it is environmental, um, you know, and established through experience uh, over time. So if you guys had, uh, I guess, some advice for people um, looking to build that resiliency, um, whether it's, you know, just being able to push a little bit harder, um, you know, and take themselves outside of their comfort zone, or it could even be just being more consistent and not letting outside noise or external factors, you know, influence, um, you know, their goals and things like that. What would your advice be? Hattie? Go ahead, Hattie. Yeah, you just you just sit down and you just wait, mate. All right. Go Jackson first. Okay, thank you, Hattie. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I was gonna say that the the older you get, the harder it is to learn the skill. I think. Um, but if you ha- if you weren't sort of as lucky as lucky as me to be able to get exposed to those habits and traits from an early age, um, the best thing that you can put possibly do is put yourself in an environment that's around successful people because I feel like one of the best ways to learn this is to see what the guys at the top level are doing because more often than not if you've just been training by yourself for five or six years and be making mediocre results and potentially maybe wondering why your results aren't as good as person A on Instagram or person B. Um, More often than not, you go for a few sessions with these elite level guys and holy shit, you see a big gap between what you were doing in the gym and what person A was doing in the gym. And if you can be around these people even more than the gym and seeing what they're doing with their nutrition and how they approach their lifestyle outside of the gym and things like that, I feel like that's the that's the best way um, 
that you can do that. And we're sort of lucky in today's era with social media that you're able to actually consume a lot of this type of content through like YouTube and things like that without actually um, having to sort of be in the flesh with these people. So there is a lot of bullshit and you, you sort of, it, it can be very difficult to filter what's good content and what's not, especially if you're only in sort of your early stages. Um, but I, 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 if I, if I had one piece of advice, it would be try to locate some people either that are in your area or online that are succeeding in what you want to do and watch very closely at what they're doing and how they approach their training and their nutrition and, and their lifestyle. Yeah, sound advice. Patty, over to you. Thanks for being so kind and letting Jackson go first. <laughs> um, you know, I, I really loved... like this is something you know as a child it's it's easier to learn like it's easier to learn a language when you're younger right our brains are like sponges and it's also easier to, to learn discipline grit resilience and also like the people that we do spend our time with is so important like if we look at you know say you're you're what is it a reflection of the five people that you're closest with there's something to that but also the media that you expose yourself to is also important like there's so many you know i always talk about are you an influencer or are you of influence? Be around people of influence. That's what makes the changes. So look at what the best in the world are doing. Do you want to say something, Jackson? I was just going to jump in with a comment that just popped in my head. Then you mentioned Seabum before, and you're just talking about like you're the product of the people you surround yourself with. Look at their circle. So you've got Chris, his girlfriend, Courtney King, his brother-in-law, Ian Bellier, and his wife, Melissa Bumstead, who's the sister of, of Chris, all four of them have been at the Mr. Olympia. Ian's going to be top five Olympia. Chris has won multiple titles. Courtney's won multiple titles. Melissa's been at the Olympia. Is that just by chance that they're all just randomly super succeeding? Like, fuck no. It's I, I, I say without a shadow of a doubt that, that they have like success breeds success and the, the habits and the approach that, that they're taking, it, it's, it's no surprise that the people that are closest to them are also succeeding at the high level. It's, it's not just random chance that, that all of them are together in the same household reaching that level. It's no chance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually really important who you recognize where you spend, like that you recognize where you spend your time. Something I talk about is like, is radical responsibility and with radical responsibility comes radical self-leadership right amazing tools to actually become conscious of like where am i spending my time like and that comes down to social media are you reading any books books are healing like autobiographies um there's a there's actually a book called grit that's amazing atomic habits like these are all things that help build resilience and then you have to do the action right inspiration without action is just entertainment so are you entertaining ideas and wondering why you're not actually achieving anything or are you turning inspiration into action right motivation and, and inspiration they go together but motivation also lets us down so within that inspiration when you feel the fire burning when you're influenced by someone you've read something you're constantly getting messages come in create an action plan from that and then can you take the emotion out of the process like if you're if we're ever always doing something that's if we're always emotionally driven, 
well, then we're going to find that we're only going to travel when we feel good. Like, that's not what makes a champion. That's not what builds mm-hmm. either. Like, you've got to be able to do it on the hard days. Self-leadership is doing the things I said I would do, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, right? And not many people exercise self-leadership. Sorry, I went on. Just got a little bit passionate there. But, you know, sorry, sorry, take it back. But don't take it back. I think, like, you have to build, like, practice and body skill and skill and body's practice. Like they go hand in hand. Mm. How you build grit, you have to be willing to, to, to practice no matter how hard it is. And, but you have to embody your why. You have to know why you're doing it. Because, again, we have wants and needs. Wants are like a dream. Needs, you'll do what it takes to get there. It has to be a need. It has to, you have to want to change your life, right? And no one can do it for you but yourself. So, Look at who you're being influenced by. Look at who you're spending your time, where you're spending your time, who you're spending your time with. It all matters. Yep. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Anything you want to add? Um, no, I don't think at this stage. Like success leaves clues. You know, there's no wonder we see. You know, like Jackson mentioned, the string of like your know, multiple family members being successful when they're surrounded by people who push them to be better. Um, I think the environment that we're in, you know, people don't often pay enough attention to, you know, the types of people they're around. Um, and, you know, frankly, with social media, there's so much negativity complaining, you know, being drainers and stuff. I think people just don't take enough responsibility for their own like environment and kind of the, the attitudes and things that they're putting out there and their capacity to influence their own development and that of those around them, frankly, you know, I think a lot of coaches, you know, we try and be as positive as we can, but, um, you know, surrounding yourself with positive people who want you to be better and are willing to challenge you and to push you. Um, and also being that person for other people, it's just going to foster development and it's going to foster like, you know, great progress. And that's why we see, you know, people in those environments always just seem to be thriving and getting ahead. And then, you know, they're kind of, um, they're kind of just like leaving other people in the in their wake or in their dust a little bit, right? Yeah, you know what? I That's... don't even think it's just always being positive. Like, just thinking that you have to, that you, everything's going to happen just because you're positive is also like can be a downfall. Mm. But something to say was like challenging someone. Like, we can only hold a mirror to ourselves, and when we hear someone say something as a coach, as a quarter that we can repeat back to them word by word, what they said. So when they're not exercising, like there is someone listening and look, I think we've been pretty blessed. I've been very blessed to have amazing support network with around me, my family, my friends. I've got amazing friends, beautiful friends. I'm inspired by my friends and not everyone has that. Um, so for anyone that is like, you know, doesn't have a great environment or support network, the thing is that we can change our environment and looking at what we can do, I think yeah. is really important. I think the one thing I'll add, Jacob, you're muted. The one thing I will add is, um, you know, sometimes you do need to take stock and change your environment and accept responsibility and accountability for those things. Um, you know, being understanding that there might be a point where 
you know, sustaining a friendship or a relationship or, you know, sticking something out when it's like, you know, it's okay that, you know, things don't make sense or change happens in our lives. And I think, um, you know, sometimes people kind of, they'll just stick something out because they're kind of like, oh, I'm already in so deep instead of just being like, you know what? No, it's like, I don't enjoy this anymore. Uh, This person doesn't align with um, my values and my, you know, what I want to get out of things. And just like, you have to make those decisions at at a point. It's not about being an asshole, um, you know, but sometimes you need to audit your own life. And that's, Mm. again, like, you know, you're just making these like conscious and cognizant decisions about, you know, does this stack up with where I want to go and what I want to be and are the people I'm hanging around with, are the things that I'm doing aligning with those longer term goals? Um, And sometimes that just means making hard decisions, you know. I think a really useful uh, analogy is that of a a lifesaver, right? They'll go to save anybody who's drowning. um, But if that person starts to pull them under or grab their legs, and they're not trying to help themselves, they are trained to kick them away because it's better that one person survives than have two people drown. And I think that's um, a really important lesson for a lot of people is sometimes you do have to, um, you know, if people are on a sinking ship and they're not looking to help themselves, you do have to, yeah, kick them away. Otherwise you're going to go down as well. Um, And I think another sort of aspect of that is that the people around you should want, this is Jordan Peterson, which I actually some of his stuff I like, some of his stuff I don't necessarily like, but um, he advocates that, um, you know, the people around you should want the best for you and the best part for the best part of you. Um, And that's a pretty powerful concept um, to wrap your head around because if the people around you want the best for you, for the best part of you, um, that means that they will understand support, um, you know, the things that you do um, provided they're, you know, positive and beneficial for you. So, yeah, food for thought there. But anyway, moving on, uh, I think we'll probably have um, enough time to get through the questions people have submitted. But Lee, I just want to ask a little bit about your training currently. And I think something that will be interesting, at least I want to know about uh, personally, is how does your training differ now compared to, or does it look different now compared to what it did in 2016 when you uh, were the world champion? Are there any massive changes or is it more of the same small tweaks and adjustments? Yeah. I mean, my train, Oh my God, my training's changed so much. So 2016, I was squatting six days a week. I barely did any upper body. Squat every day, bro. Like by holding that bar on my back and I would do like, it'd be low bar, front squat, high bar, low bar, front squat, high bar, like six days a week squatting and a bit of accessory work. And I just became a really good squatter. And I built, I mean, I built my physique. I was a world champion. Um, You know, as I've gotten older, I've had to learn to work smarter. Um, You know, Bass, who I, who I've done so much training with, um, you know, he's, he laughs, he's like, Caddy, more is more. Doesn't necessarily mean more is better. (laughs) And, um, you know, I've had to wrestle with him, um so many times on pulling back volume because the truth is just because I can doesn't mean it's better and doesn't mean I should now um you know I've worked over the years with different different coaches um you know Tony Bataji's been a big mentor of mine as well um I've done some work with Dean McKillop as well so it's been like you know just learning as 
you know, learning from these guys and, um, you know, always refining. Like I said, as I've gotten older, I can't do the volume and the intensity like I used to be able to do and still think I'm going to get away with it. At some point I've got, my body's got to pay it back. So now like I always keep strength working. Strength for me is, um, it's funny when I do volume, I'm like, God, I love volume. But then I do strength and I'm like, God, I love strength. And I just, I just fucking love training. I don't think I've met anyone that loves training like I do. Um, and I just love walking to the gym and just, yeah, just pushing, pushing my limits. So what's changed? Um, I now incorporate, I mean, I love training upper body. Now I train upper body twice a week. I never used to train upper body, not even 2016. I did like some, sort of like some shoulder health work and that was it. Um, and yeah, now I love training shoulders, love training back. So I do isolated like push pull, pull work at the moment. Um, you know, I'm prioritizing shoulders. So if I look at like, normally I try and do quite a structurally balanced program over the week and it's so unstructured. It's, there's, you know, it's very specific now. Um, I do a lot more glute work than what I used to do. Like I never used to hip thrust. Obviously I hip thrust now, um, but I still always have a squat and deadlift component in there because I fucking love deadlifting and I fucking love squatting and I just want to be strong, you know? So um, my volume, well, it comes in waves, but yeah, now I incorporate a lot of different movements, different exercises, um, it's not just yeah squat every day. It's upper body work. Um, in a way, it's in a way it's more balanced because it's not yeah so much axle loading in my spine. I guess yeah, it's changed a lot. I just I just love progression. I just love seeing progression. Um, every year I want to get that little bit stronger. Actually, what was really nice about last year having the year off from training was like I could train exactly the way I wanted to train. If my quads got bigger. It didn't matter. Like if I got a bit thicker, like in places that I'm not meant to be thick when I get on stage, like I didn't care. I could just purely train the way I wanted to train. I got fucking strong. I finally hit 150 kilos for a squat. Um, hit 160 in a dead in my deadlifts. Like hitting numbers that I never thought I would possibly, you know, ever get to, and still staying at 60 kilos. Crazy. You know, There's so some good numbers. Yeah, mm. like very good numbers. That, that's good for my soul <laughs> so how do you correct me if i'm wrong but over the years you've had to fine tune uh your training um to better suit your your needs and you've you've got a better handle on that just through the process of becoming a more matured athlete um gaining that experience um and i think that's something that's really important uh, mike israel sort of touched on this um, in our previous episode uh, when we spoke with him, but advanced lifters know how to select the right exercise to maximize the stimulus to fatigue ratio for them. And it sounds like you've been able to, on a more um, systemic level, fine tune your program to fit where you're at, whether it's off season, being able to sort of tick the boxes of, I need to get, you know, strong because that's going to you know keep me motivated and enjoying my training or cool. I need big adults, you know, this prep for, for worlds or, okay. You know, I'm incorporating exercises that have less actual loading on the back because I'm just not recovering. Like I used to, you've on a system systemic level, been able to fine tune things, to suit you. And I think that's something that um, is really important as your training level of advancement uh, increases. Um, so are there any other things that you've sort of come to realize about your own training that work better for you that you probably previously didn't think would work? 
Ah, recovery. (laughs) You know, recovery and sleep are definitely two tools that get so underlooked. Um, You know, I think there was also a mentality of like I had to train six days a week. And, you know, now that I'm out of that way of thinking, I definitely think it was residue from an eating disorder, my eating disorder. Mm. And um, now it's like, you know, having two rest days, I'm even thinking my next prep, I'm just going to train four days a week and see how that goes. Like, there's no way in 2016 would I ever think like that. It was like more is better. No, no, no. More is more, you know? So um, you know, and I, I think like, what's the minimum effective dose rather than what can I maximally do? And that's a really big shift. And that's really hard for, you know, for females, I coach a lot of females and stripping things back is so scary for them. It's like, Oh, can I do more? I'm like, you're already doing like 24 sets of fucking glutes a week. You don't need like, there's, there's people that are volume responders and there are people that are intensity responders. I can do fucking both. Doesn't mean I should, you know, so pick my battle and then, get this, you know, the stimulus I want and then change. And, um, you know, a part of that is, you know, recovery, having days off, improving sleep. You know, I, I don't go out as much as I used to. And, and something that I am grateful for is when training intensity is so high, you know, I get to the weekend, I go, what's my priority now? Like, I can't keep, if I want to, like, I can't keep doing this or I can't, you know, go out the weekend because Monday I've got to come into the gym and I've got to hit, you know, five sets of five or one thirty. And last week was fucking awful. Like, so where's my priority now? So, you know, as I've gotten older, priorities changed again. 2016 was like, you're a world champion. Like this is, this is serious. And then every year it's gone. Well, how do I keep being at the top of my game? And, you know, that requires a level of sacrifice and, um, yeah, I think just learning to learning to, to balance or, or balance as best as I can, you know, my work to rest ratio to get to get the result I want. And yeah, minimum effective dose, I think, is something that I had to learn over time. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, Hattie, that uh, concludes the formal questions. Now enter the chamber of doom because uh, things are going to get interesting here. Before, yeah. before we get to those questions, there was actually a friend of mine who's a like quite a good cyclist. He sent me, this goes back to something I wanted to raise like early on in the piece. He sent me this um, podcast, Rich Roll podcast. And it was about this old, like this ultra marathon runner. I think her name's Courtney DeWalter. And she's like, she won some like absurd, obscene length run, both beat all males, females by like 10 hours. Like, absurd and she conceptualized i think like you know what we spoke about earlier earlier about um you know getting into the zone of training is her hurt cave and you know initially early in her like running career her ultra marathon running career or whatever it is um you know she would try and delay that delay getting to that stage where it's like oh shit's getting real hard and this sucks um but then later when she was starting to become more successful was kind of like, Oh, this is where I want to be. And this is where the work starts. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, th- I just thought that was a really interesting mindset, um, you know, from someone who's 
probably spending, you know, multiple hours and days consecutively sucking shit whilst running and just putting their body through the absolute paces, you know, sleeping a few minutes here or there and then just going again and again and again for hours after hour after hour. Um, very interesting. But, yeah, maybe we're... I think she was on the Seth uh, Rogen podcast. Yeah, Joe Rogan. Joe, sorry, Joe Rogan. Sorry, yeah. Does Seth Rogen have a podcast? Oh, sorry. I'm going to check that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, she has been on it. She has been on it. Um, I haven't listened to that episode, but just a really cool concept and something from, like, you know, obviously we're not going in the gym for 15, 20 hours, but it's like you have to push hard in at least a set that goes for a minute. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, uh, anyway, what Jackson was talking about, it's like people aren't willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, like very actually, much so. You have to like, you have to be uncomfortable. There's got to be discomfort in training in order for your body mm. to change. We just aren't willing to go there, and what they feel, they think is uncomfortable, like their brain just thinks it's uncomfortable. There's so much more left in the muscle. Yeah. And, um, Something yeah, I've learned about training. Um, is that like people think that like a two or three RIR set is like really, really hard work and it takes a lot. Like when you've done something like rowing and I, I would say the same would be for like the gymnastics training. Like when you've done something like that, going in the gym and like busting your ass for a set, like that's just not that hard. Like it should be, should be pretty fucking easy to do. Like when you're comparing it to to what other people in different sporting domains are, do, are doing. So when I hear about guys that like can't do 10 hard sets in the gym for a session, I almost just want to fucking bitch flat them and say like toughen the fuck up because like, like I understand they haven't been exposed to that, that sort of training, like with rowing or gymnastics or, or marathon running or something like that. But like, the reality is like even even boxing like boxing is on on a whole nother level like like three minute rounds where someone's trying to take your head off and you're trying to take their head off like you take your body to a weird weird place like way beyond comfortability um but the fact is like those sort of sports like they're on a whole nother effort level and a whole nother intensity level so when i hear about people that like are complaining about like their gym workouts and and doing 10 or 15 sets a session I, it's just almost just want to laugh at them like you know what I mean it's just a weird rant that that has been on my mind for a little while we've all set our pieces Thanks I'm going to move to the questions so the way we've broken the questions out is so a couple that I'm going to direct to the person that I think is going to be most suitable to uh, answer in a little bit more long form. And then we're going to go like a rapid fire um, question at the end and we'll get an answer from everyone uh, where appropriate, where warranted. So the very first question we have here, um, some of them aren't questions, but I'm going to try and phrase them as such. Um, this one is, I think, directed best at Jackson. So any advice or tips for gut health improvement? Why the fuck would that be best targeted to me? Um, I don't know. Well, you're the nutrition guy here. You've got the biggest gut, that's why. Yeah. You're the most <laughs> badass. Damn. Damn. Um, like, we've, we've chatted a bit about this off air, um, but I do think that this whole gut health thing is a little bit overhyped. 
and borderline of a fad uh, that's entered the fitness industry. And I dare say that in a few years, it probably would have left the fitness industry just like a lot of the other fads. Because um, the fact is like some fantastic physiques, like like the physiques that, that we're pushing out these days, like we, at the same time that we've seen this insurgence of gut health supplements and gut health routines and things like that. The physiques aren't any better. And I dare say the health parameters aren't any better than they were sort of 10 years ago when we were just training and, and trying to eat healthy and things like that. So when it comes to like gut health supplements, there really isn't anything that I'm prepared to say is worth our time. Um, some people might disagree with me, but I just think that in, this, in the infancy of the research and what we do know, um, there isn't a whole lot there just yet. Um, and I know a lot of people like to talk about pro probiotics and things like that, but when you look at the, when you actually truly look into the research and look beyond what the back of the label of these products says, um, sometimes consuming these probiotics can even have negative consequences on, on, the, on gut health. So, um, it, it's it's gut health isn't something that I put massive emphasis on when I'm working with clients. Like I'll tend to just focus on the big rocks and, and that's the diet. So as long as you've got a balanced diet where you're consuming an ample amount of plant material and you're not overloading on if it fits in macros style, sugar alcohols and quest bars and things like that, which can be out of detriment of the gale. That, that's probably the biggest change that I would say has been recently is this insurgence of like sugar alcohol loaded products and like calorie friendly foods that people start trying to work into their macros now. I think that's probably been the biggest change. And that's, if anything, is one of the things that we should be looking at when we're trying to sort of um, maintain or improve our gut health is potentially look at the intake of these sort of commercial processed products that we're consuming. A lot of konjac noodles, a lot of quest bars, things like that. Um, tend to be when I, when, I, when I do see a client with gut health issues or gut discomfort or digestive discomfort, usually they are consuming a fair bit of those things and just removing them is enough to sort of get a, a whole lot of relief. But if you're not consuming those things um, or if you're just consuming them every now and again, which is my advice, uh, then as long as you're getting ample amount of plant material from fruits and veggies and whole grains in your diet, uh, I really don't think that there's much else that we should be worrying on. And there's, there's certainly a lot of other things that we should be putting more focus on. Cool. Thank you. I think that's a nice answer. I'd like to hear Hattie's, Hattie's opinion though, because I, I feel like she's going to disagree with me a bit. So I'm going to punch you through the screen. No, no, no. So look, my, my advice is like what I say to my girls is get a variety of fruits and vegetables into your diet. Like mm -hmm. the base of our nutrition should be 80% wholesome unprocessed food. That's what I think is a sustainable and a balanced diet yeah. and variety coming in. Like the downfall of, of people, you know, on diet plans is that we limit the available food and variety of food that comes into the gut and we then create food intolerances over time or can can do i have a i've got a product it's gut performance it is for the gut and it's an active broad sec broad, broad spectrum prebiotic it's a prebiotic so again and it's it's fire based and what we've found with the prebiotic as that it's what we have found with the prebiotic is that it's helped manage inflammation and it was actually originally developed for people with diabetes 
and we saw huge improvements in their blood sugar levels from the prebiotic managing the inflammation in the gut. So I think that, I mean, I take it every day and it's just to complement. I have an amazing diet. I've got a diet that's very balanced, very healthy, and a lot of variety. And it's just to complement. It's not to band-aid. But again, if you have gut issues, you should be looking at seeing a specialist. And that's that's my would be my absolute advice. Like if you actually have gut issues. Would you yeah. agree that though if, if you are adhering to your recommendations around sort of plant material and diet and unprocessed food? Would you agree that we just shouldn't have an inflamed gut though anyway? Otherwise, what, how, why would we have an inflamed gut? Can you say it again for me? I said, would you agree that if we were adhering to your recommendations around plant material and unprocessed foods, hmm. would you agree that we shouldn't have an inflamed gut though anyway? Yeah, 100%. So like following on from that, is, is there much utility in taking a supplement if you don't have an inflamed gut? If you don't have any, if you don't have any issues, then you don't need to. You don't need to take anything. Yeah, I, think that, I, think that, I think that's the key there, though. Like, there's there's this perception out there in our fitness industry that everyone needs to be taking gut health supplements. And what I'm just trying to say there is, if you don't have any underlying issues, mm-hmm. and if you're doing a reasonably approached diet, then there's there's not that much need for these things. Yeah. 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 I think that the message there is basically supplements are exactly that and they should only be used supplementary to a very well balanced diet i think in my experience the only time people ever seem to really have gut health issues is when they're making these drastic um, adjustments to their diet either cutting out um, entire food groups uh, Mm -hmm. for extended periods of times or like you know doing things that are say more borderline extreme um, and then surprise surprise the way they feel is a little bit abnormal um I think, yeah, we're yeah. all on the same page there in terms of a good, well-balanced, healthy diet includes a variety of foods. If you're excluding foods for religious or ethical reasons or whatever other reason, that's obviously a little bit of a different story. And then there may be the need to supplement further. Um, but if you can, you should try and eat from a variety of food sources. Yeah, I think and, really, people really underestimate how powerful food is. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Preach it. All right. Next okay. question. This one uh, is directed to the most handsome person on the call over here. Thank you, naturally. Um, so the reason I directed to myself is just my personal and probably more professional experience dealing with uh, this type of matter. But any advice on handling or managing low back issues? So this question came up to Jackson a couple of times. Um, as Jacob mentioned earlier on the call, throughout my lifting career, you know, I've had various injuries and stuff like that. I've had nagging back issues to the point where I've been completely incapable of putting my own socks on in the morning. Um, can be back issues can be very debilitating. And I think that it's very hard to give general, um, advice recommendations on how anyone should deal with a back issue. I think the best way to, um, handle any injury is obviously first if it's if it's impacting your training um you know firstly adjust training and go and seek a professional um 
or an external allied health professional's input and advice, make sure it's someone that you trust. Um, you know, there's definitely practitioners out there who are just after your money and they're not necessarily looking uh, out for you and your best interests. Um, if training is something that's important to you, if you're an athlete who competes in a specific sport that might have specific requirements, say like powerlifting or weightlifting and your experience and back issues, um, you, if you want to persist with those sports, uh, you have to, I guess, acknowledge that back pain and the exposure to those types of issues are part and parcel to a degree when we are experiencing like high actual loading or loads getting really high and we're putting our body under these you know, really strenuous uh, positions and situations. But what I will say, drawing on my own personal and professional experience, um, when you do have back issues, oftentimes, you know, in my, my personal back issue history, there's always been kind of, um, you know, signs and signals leading up to, you know, we'll call them events or these incidences where I've had a flare up and that's been, you know, quite impactful. Um, I think, you know, Hattie mentioned earlier, really managing your training volume and recovery is very important. We all know that and it's something that everyone should be advocating. So, uh, if you're experiencing ongoing back issues, it might be worth looking at the type of work that you're doing and whether or not that is appropriate um, and you can recover adequately. Uh, looking at other stresses in your life, um, remembering training is a stress on the body. So if you're experiencing, uh, you know, financial stress, relationship stress, work stress, family stress, um, you know, whatever it might be, they can manifest physically, um, making sure that you're, physically and psychologically prepared to train every time you go into the gym. If you're someone who um, experiences issues, any injury, any niggle, and you find that it's like when it flares up, it can be quite bad. Developing your own routine, um, you know, again, born from your personal experience and what feels good for you and works for you. Plus, you know, any advice or recommendations from a practitioner in terms of like, you know, developing your own rehab or, you know, pre-exercise warm-up routine, uh, to make sure you are adequately uh, physically prepared and psychologically prepared to lift. And the last thing I'll say is injuries happen. Um, they suck. They very much do suck, um, but they do happen. And whilst we can do our absolute best to avoid them and minimize them and try and, you know, make sure that they don't impact our life and our training all that much when they do happen, just try and, you know, do what you can to allow yourself to recover. Don't push it. Don't overdo it. Seek, you know, professional help. A lot of these kind of non-super serious soft tissue injuries will resolve themselves quite quickly in a couple of days to maybe a couple of weeks if it's more serious. Oftentimes it's more the psychological stress and the, the, the fear of the injury coming back and this like mental apprehension towards, you know, certain movements and kind of like you feel like it's going to happen again at any point in time. But that psychological injury, that, that's what lasts longer than often the physical you know, the, that kind of dread of, I have heavy deadlifts today, or I'm heavy squats, so I've got some exercise that really jacks my back up. Is today going to be the day, right? The physical injury is probably well and truly gone. You know, it's been months between injuries, but that kind of nagging kind of devil on your shoulder is always there when you have ongoing back issues. So I think, you know, mentally backing yourself. If you don't think you're going to lift it safely or confidently, or if you think you're going to get injured, 
um, you know, maybe adjust the load, maybe adjust what you're doing um, just so you have a little bit more confidence. Um, yeah. I've got some um, additional it. stuff there, a little bit more technical, I guess. But um, William Printitus in his book of uh, what's it called, it's like athletic training principles, principles of athletic training. Anyway, he describes uh, injury as mechanical injury force, which is like applied to any part of the body and results in harmful disturbance. And the, the two important words here are in functional structure, right? So with that in mind, injuries can be either structural um, you know, like a herniated disc in relation to this question. And that's obviously very different to an injury, which impacts function because we know injury is a very, and pain science is a very complex phenomena. There's, you know, the biopsychosocial model, um, which, you know, sort of denotes that there are many different uh, facets that contribute to pain, which could be perceived as an injury. And I think yeah, in relation to powerlifting, bodybuilding style, strength training, um, injuries aren't structural injuries aren't that common. Um, you know, there's research, um, you know, back in, I think it was like as or someone in 2017, anyway, they found that injury rates in powerlifting and bodybuilding, basically, um, you know, like one to five injuries per thousand hours, um, in powerlifting and something like 0.24 to one, um, injury per thousand hours in bodybuilding. So injury rates are pretty low, but I think when you do have a, a functional related injury, so that pain is impairing your ability to move or whatnot, I think load management is the most important thing. Um, whether it's reducing um, the weight on the bar, doing less volume, your volume load. So the overall work that you're doing is oftentimes the solution to uh, rehabilitation. Um, but we have a lot of people who don't want to do that. They don't want to squat, you know, 30% of their one rep max, you know, at an RP five for a week or two, uh, because they're going to lose their gains, you know? Um, and we have that, you know, dichotomous, uh, type thinking where it's all or nothing. If I can't squat my, you know, max lifts or train in a way that I need to, to progress, I might not, I might as well not train at all. Um, but the reality is oftentimes when you decrease volume load, which volume load could be defined um, as reps times sets times load, but also distance traveled, um, you know, when you take into account those four variables, you know, in summation, if you can manage that, usually we're able to start lifting um, and that will obviously decrease the um, stress on whatever structures are being stressed and it'll lower your, um, you know, experience of pain um, because you're not going to be pushed into positions where structurally they can't tolerate that, or it's not going to be a load that you are not, you know, acclimated to tolerating yet. Uh, so load tolerance is a huge one there. And that's really all I've got to add to Sam's anecdote. Cool. Um, next question. Dealing with nerves before stepping on stage. Um, Hattie, we're going to direct that one to you something that I always practice in the lead up to getting on stage is visualizing myself on stage. So you know, I've done many shows. So I know, I know the, the sound of the MC, I know what the stage looks like and I visualize that. So I almost embody what it feels like. I'll notice the nerves come up. I'll notice the hairs of my arms stand up. And so when it comes to actually executing, I'm familiar with the environment. And in a way it's like, I invite the nerves. You know, I've been competing for eight years well, I've been competing my whole life and I still remember those nerves when I was a gymnast and to when I was getting on stage, they're going to be there, right? Because you care. You're doing something that you've worked so 
fucking hard for for such a long period of time. This has been a goal that you've set for yourself for such a long time. Embrace the nerves. They're there. They're there to um, bring on the experience. Um, but just notice them. Don't ride with them. Um, ride with the excitement. Take deep breaths. Like I said, visualize yourself. Um, visualize yourself in the lead up. Daily practices. Visualize yourself when you're doing your posing routine. Um, and again, you know, experience makes things a little bit easier. But I'm going to guess that, you know, before these guys do a powerlifting meet, before uh, Jackson, you get into the ring, before any kind of competition, nerves are going to be there because, yeah, it's something that you've been working towards. So I guess uh, learn to embrace it, 10 deep breaths, slow yourself down and use visualisation as an awesome tool to execute. Cool. I love that. Great answer. Uh, next... So when, no, we're not going to answer that one. Okay. Uh, Jacob, max per body, single session training volume per body part. So I think how much training volume should we direct at one single body part in a single training session? Yeah. Well, at the moment, it's looking to be around the eight to 10 sets per body part per training session. Um, but that's going to depend significantly on the type of movements uh, that you're doing and the overall stimulus and the fatigue of those sets. So for example, um, if you were to do 10 sets of squats, I would say that that would probably, especially if it's, you know, within a couple of reps of failure and you're over say 75% one rep max in terms of loading, I would say that your ability to recover from that um, or at least see some significant hypertrophy to the degree that you're able to then train hard in the, in, within a couple of days, you know, within say three to five days. Um, it could be too much for some people. Um, but again, if you balance that volume out with, you know, some um, less fatiguing exercises uh, that apply more direct stimulus, such as like a leg extension and you do some squats and maybe some lunges in there. Um, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to do 11 sets or 12 sets because i think um whilst we're going to get the stress and what that's going to lead to a degradation in performance before we recover and see that super compensatory effect after the workout i think um you know the more stimulus we can apply and recover from um the more growth we'll get the problem we run into uh, is that a lot of people are training with uh, moderate to high frequencies. So training each muscle group two to three times a week. And if they're doing so, and they're doing over you know 10 sets per session per body part, uh, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to be recovered if they're training hard enough um, by their next session, which might be in a few days time. And this is why bro splits do work as well, because we used to have blokes doing 20 to 30 sets for a muscle group, but they'd only train it once a week. So they had that full seven days to get that super compensatory effect before they were able to train the muscle group again. Whereas now what we've seen, you know, due to the evidence-based science movement is people are training more frequently. They're getting less uh, volume per workout. uh, And we've had to then split that that weekly volume up across more workouts. Um, But again, I think anywhere from say eight to 12 sets per workout per muscle group, um, is usually a good range. It's going to depend on, as I said, the exercises that you use um, and the overall, I guess, stress costs of those exercises. Thank you very much. Anything Thanks you want to add, Jackson? Yeah. Anything you want to add, Jackson? No, like, like those recommendations, uh, pretty much smack bang with what I'm doing at the moment. 
Um, so I'm doing like roughly 12 to 14 sets per session. I'm training a muscle group once every five days. Yeah. Um, like a four day on, one day off and then repeat. Um, and like for some people, like 12 or 14 sets might not sound like lots, um, but it's usually the people that are just going in and doing like those pump sets and leaving a bunch of reps in the tank for each set and things like that. Um, like if you are training like that, then yeah, you can get away with, with doing 20 sets per session and not feeling completely jammed. Um, but if your sets are truly working sets and you're taking yourself to your limit or very close to um, 12 to 14, 10, 10 to 14 sets per session should be, should be ample to be definitely, definitely like there's some, some of my sessions, like I get to like, I am in a deficit now. So recovery capabilities are compromised a little bit. Um, but those last few sets of the session, like I'm smoked. Like it's, mm. it's taking a little bit of the, the stuff from the basement to, to get me over the line with those last few sets. I think you touched on a good point there, Jackson. You can't look at any variable in isolation. Um, to draw hard and fast conclusions as to what you should and shouldn't do. Because if you're training at an RPE, we know there's a dose response relationship with training volume. So more volume is better until we start to see plateau and regression. And it's anywhere from around, you know, 20 sets per week, um, you know, per muscle group uh, that we start to see that. But at the same time, if your intensity is low, because um, remember volume is the dose of the stress and intensity is the stimulus essentially. Um, so if the dose of the, if the intensity is low, you're training, you know, four to five reps from failure, you'll need to do more volume to compensate for less stress, less stimulus per set by doing more sets to get a sufficient amount of stimulus. So you could do 30 to 40 sets per week per muscle group. If you're training very far from failure, and as Jackson said, they're like pump and fluff set sets. If you're training at a really high intensity, um, and you're doing like, say, for example, one of maxes, well, you aren't going to be able to do that two to three times a week. You might be able to do that once every seven, 10, 14 days because the intensity is so high. So I think when it comes to looking at volume recommendations, whether it's per session um, or per week, we really need to factor in intensity um, as well as frequency. So the time component between exposures to that stimulus. Um, and when you have a more holistic view, you can really start to dial in um, you know, where your volume requirements lie. Um, and a good proxy for that is simply, am I recovering from one session to the next? If so, good. Is my performance improving? And am I getting bigger? If so, keep doing that. If you stop recovering, um, you know, address factors like sleep, nutrition. Jackson pointed out he's in a deficit. So if you're dieting, you start, you know, losing weight, well, that might impact your ability to recover. So you dial volume down. For your surplus, things are going great. Um, you're covering fine at a little bit more if you're, you know, plateau. So I think, yeah, you need to have a really holistic view. And too often people look at these things, you know, through a quite myopic lens um, and only think about volume, but it's, it's more than that. Cool. All right. We're going to do one more question. Then we're going to go through the rapid fire. Um, advice on training and being when you are sick or unwell. Um, I'm going to tackle this one. I did discuss it very briefly at the start when we we're off air. Um, I think when you're sick or unwell, the there's a lot of individuals out there who are kind of like team no days off, let's train, like sweat it out, stuff like that. 
Um, being sick is, you know, compromise, a compromisation of the immune system. Um, basically, it's an extra stress and it's something that you need to recover from and heal and allow yourself the adequate time to return to, say, baseline functions. Um, I certainly think that there is some instances where like you know sickness or you're maybe a little bit under the weather and you can probably go and train and it's not going to cause too many issues um but training through sickness is not something that i would ever really advocate you know where you know living in a global pandemic um so again you have to consider the fact that you may be exposing other people to uh, also making them sick but yeah generally speaking if you're unwell you know you've got a cold or a flu you're probably just better off um, focusing on rest and recovery, giving your body the chance to get back to where it should normally be and then returning to the gym. Like, you know, COVID taught us one thing, you know, a few days off the gyms, you're not going to lose all of your gains in a very short period of time. Uh, you might lose a little bit of fitness in, you know, the first few days and then, you know, you're not really losing much muscle mass for one to two weeks. You know, hopefully you're prioritizing eating and rest and recovery during that time. So you're going to be doing, you know, sufficient amount to give yourself the resources to preserve some of those adaptations you have worked hard for. Um, but yeah, if you're really sick, I don't think it's a positive um, mindset to go into the gym and try and smash yourself to kind of, you know, sweat it out because uh, that's not how recovery from an illness necessarily works. Uh, Jacob, do you have anything that you would like to add? Just prioritize your health it is the foundation yeah. of fitness and if you're sick point. you're not going to be able to train um or at least in any manner that is going to be productive so focus on your health and do whatever you got to do um to feel better and obviously recover from whatever ailment you have and then you know the time course for decay of you know muscle and strength is quite long right it's like you know you lose strength maybe you know two to three weeks muscle mass depending on you know whether or not you train at all um you know but it can hang around for up to a month jackson i spoke about this a while ago um you know and other portal discussions related to lockdown stuff but it's like muscle tissue hangs around for yeah up to a month you know without any significant loss um in lean mass so just rest just recover and then you'll be fine cool all right Let's do some rapid fire questions. Which exercise do you dislike? Hattie, we're going to start with you. Hate training abs. Hate training yeah. abs. Jacob. Um, least favorite exercise? Oh, probably. That's a good question. I actually don't know. I don't really dislike an exercise. I think there are some that I just like more. But I, yeah, maybe calves. Calves. We'll say calves. I don't like training calves. Well, Jackson. Well, oh, Jackson. What I Jackson. Go? Jackson doesn't like training legs. That's why they're so small. That's it. My legs are gonna kick your ass when you see him next. <laughs> Jackson, exercise you dislike training. Hate barbell bicep curls. I never do them because they hurt my wrists and my forearm. Yeah. And I hate I hate lying hamstring curls. 
Jackson, your, your farms will be carrying a lot of residual fatigue from all your extracurricular activities at home, wouldn't That's they? That's it. You think if you lowered the volume and frequency of, um, you know, your anime porn, you'd be able to do some barbell curls without any issues? Hey, ask yourself where I'm living. Forearms. Happy in the <laughs> <laughs> No one will appreciate your response, but it was actually really, it was really good. <laughs> I think of what my least favorite exercise is. I think I, I fucking hate good mornings. I hate having a good morning. Mm. I rather I just don't like. The, I don't like the way they feel. I don't like having like a bar on your back, and like yeah. just bending over like an RDL. It's like, what a shit name. Hey, it's not a good morning. It's like it's literally the worst thing you could do. A good morning. Um, Bowl of cereal and some cartoons. That's what. That's yes. What you're pretty, Jess, you're pretty experienced with having to bend over and getting a heavy load on your back, aren't you? <laughs> I'm oh trying God. to visualize this. All right, let's go. Let's go. Next question. I've got another call in a minute. Uh, who do you admire in the fitness industry? Not Jack. Hattie. Hattie, go first. Just a name. Rachel Dillon. Rachel Dillon. Jacob. Uh, probably Eric Helms and Dr. Mike. Cool. That was two names, but sure. Uh, Jackson. I'm going to say this one because it's fresh on my mind and rest in peace, John Meadows. Yeah. RIP. Um, mine, I think Greg Knuckles. He's been quiet, hasn't he? Yeah, but he does. He just does his thing. I he just does his thing. What's he been doing? He's, uh, he's, he's on the journey to the stage. He's, he's dieting. Imagine he's he like, came out to oh, shred it. Greg, I hope one day. I'm, I message him and I ask him, I'm like, are you actually competing? He's like, no, nah, it's just a joke. He's just like dieting for fat loss and he's like slowly losing weight. It's really oh. cool. Anyway, um, when dieting for a physique comp, how do you assess whether you're ready for stage? Well, frankly, you should look at a certain, a certain level of leanness and be ready. Uh, you should be able to tell, I would think. That's my answer. Jackson? How do you know if you're stage ready? Yeah. You just know. If you're tr- if you're truly stage ready, like as a guy, like there are some exclusions. If you have just like very unusual body fat storage, um, but if you've got some lines in your ass as a guy, um, that's a pretty good indication that that the fat's gone. Um, and generally for females, like. Generally, I'll look at like the glute ham tine. Like you're not going to expect them to have shredded glutes, you know. But if you've got that nice separation between the glute and the hamstring, usually that's how I know that a girl is pretty close to being ready. Yeah. Cool, Hattie. The depending stage on the, queen. Uh, depending on the category, um, you yeah. know, are they aligned with the category guides for the federation that they're chosen for? But yeah, I mean, we hold a lot more fat around the lower body. So the lower body is generally going to be a telltale yet they're ready or no, they still need a couple more weeks. So the glute ham tie in and also quadriceps what's happening at the quads. Cool. All right. Jacob. Uh, Yeah. Pretty much echo uh, what Jackson and Hattie said there. Um, Obviously it's category dependence, but I think if you're an athlete, how do you know if you're ready? Um, you shouldn't be too concerned unless you're coaching yourself. You shouldn't be too worried about what you think. You should listen to your coach um, and your network around you. And if they think you're ready, 
um, and you trust them and they've got a good eye for this and, um, yeah, they're not just blowing smoke up your ass. They're giving you sound advice. They'll tell you when you're ready or if you're not ready. Um, I think it gets to a certain point in a contest prep where your subjective, um, you know, brain just takes over and you can't see things objectively anymore. So I think that you're probably the worst person to try and determine whether or not you're ready um, if you're actually ready. There you go. Yeah. All right. Have you ever injured someone during intercourse? Hattie, I'm not prepared to say. Hattie will. No, I haven't. You. I have injured myself though. Ah. <laughs> one else. One of my clients had a really fucking brutal injury. Tori's banjo string. Not oh, good. Wow. I actually had to have surgery. Yeah, legit. What were they doing? Playing banjo, obviously. <laughs> Nah, I don't know. Just snapped on him. That's horrible. Let's not talk string, about that. cord. Um, I said I don't think I not an injury. No, I don't believe so. Pretty vanilla. Jackson, are we just laying it all out on the table here? <laughs> if you want, don't have to. <laughs> like this wasn't intercourse, but um, was with a girl. Um, doing some things with the hands in certain places and um, like lights roll off and like getting like very lubricated, very wet, um, like to the point of like a little bit too wet. And then I was like, okay, no, like and she, she, didn't, she hadn't said anything. I was like, nah, something, something's not right here. So like I got up and I turned the light on and just like blood everywhere, like yeah, all like down, like like she wasn't in pain or anything, but like that's it. Literally, like my whole stomach, like leg, hair, blood everywhere, sheets destroyed. So that was kind of weird. Gee whiz. Yeah. <laughs> all right, like, let's move on from there. Next. Okay. <laughs> that's a very uh, last, note to end on. Last two questions. Um. Had, well, this one's just Hattie. Name three anime. You've had it over an hour and a half now to come up with three. There's been probably a couple mentioned throughout. Well, there actually hasn't. Hey, Jackson, move your hands. What does it say on your, what does it have, say on your T-shirt? No, Naruto? Ah, yeah. good there you go. There's one. One? Uh, one, says, one says one. Can you read it? Primitive. I'm not give, no, it's above it in the little... I'm not going to come any closer to the camera because I don't want you to, like, just give them to you. No, I don't know any. Hattie can't answer three or give us three animes. Oh, so this hey guys, Roaster. Um, very disappointing. Blaster. Um, all right, and the last one to cap it off, any foods you don't like to eat? Raw tomato. Although, as I'm in prep, I did eat a raw cherry tomato the other day just because it was there and on the plate. And I was like, this isn't so bad. So I'm coming around to it after 28 years. There you go. Maybe. Pate. Yeah. Pate. Okay, yeah. yeah okay. Jackson, what about you? Any like weird, like high end seafood? Like oysters, okay. mussels? Yeah. Like I don't like. Oh, I don't really? Like no. They're an aphrodisiac. They're gross. They're kind of like. Make it yours. Aniseed. Anything aniseed, anchovies, and 
Um, Multiple foods. Jacob's going to reel off all the foods he hates. Yeah. He's like, well, we've got time. I'm coming to like olives, but yeah. Olives aren't too bad. They've got a really strong taste. I find like taking them off the pizza and you still have like the aftertaste of the olive. That's not, that's not that bad. No, but the olive itself is what I'm talking about. Yeah, but I'm still I'm I think I'm coming around to stuff. Olives on pizzas sounds pretty good to me. I like right it now. when I'm dieting. It's like the salt, like saltiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're not super palatable well, as well. You know that, like when you eat them, you're not gonna overeat them, but you get that you know mastication and it feels like you're eating something. Mm. I can I can see that Jackson kind of like pickled pickled vegetables when you diet. Pickled stuff's great. Pickled stuff's elite. I'm doing, I'm doing a few cups of mustard on them at the moment. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. right. I'm still not no no one dieting here is the point of adding the the what to what did you use to add Jacob? Carnitine the carnitine to celery. Carnitine yeah, to celery. that's what? like that's where you've hit rock bottom. I was telling Hattie before though, Jackson. I've been adding cauliflower rice to my oats as a good way to volumize it, and it's actually like fine, like very minimal flavor. Um, if you get like the fine stuff, it like blends in really well. Good, what, good what's one. What's the ratio that you use? I've never done this before. So I've, I've been like today I had like 60 grams of oats and then I just use probably like four-ish to one water on that. And then I just microwave the cauliflower rice separately in a little container. I might just do like two to one there and then you can just add some more um, water and stuff. Yeah, true. But yeah, yeah, anyway, cool. Well, I think that's everything for today. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Hattie, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, Until next time. Yeah. Stay work, Hattie. That's it. We'll see you in October. See you in October. Yeah, you have plenty of research to do on anime between now and then to not disappoint (laughs) us again. Oh, is Jackson coming? (laughs) Jackson's in Bali. He won't be able to get home. Not even by October. Come visit Bali, guys. I'll be here. See you guys. See you guys. Thanks for the call. Appreciate Bye. your time. Bye. Bye.